Welcome to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah R. Abrams. I'm a medical student in Houston, Texas. And I'm Tony Brew, an internist and hospitalist in the greater Boston area. And I'm Avi Cooper, a pulmonary critical care physician in Columbus, Ohio. So today on the podcast, we are going to be answering a question that so often we sort of just wave our hands at, which is, why do diuretics cause metabolic alkalosis? Along the way, we're going to dissect what contraction alkalosis actually means, we'll introduce a protein that none of us had ever heard of before we asked this question, and we'll find a new appreciation for an underappreciated part of the BMP. So, Tony, what prompted you to look into this? Uh, So, I think we can all agree um, that metabolic alkalosis is pretty common in patients who get diuresed. And, uh, you know, I'll be interested in in your experience, though I think I know the answer. when I would be rounding as a medical student, as a resident, and even as an attending, when I'd have a patient uh, being diuresed, whether it was for heart failure or cirrhosis or something else, and I'd see their bicarbonate increase, um, undoubtedly on rounds, someone would just wave their hands and say, oh, that's a contraction alkalosis. Um, and I realized over the last few months that, A, I didn't really know what was meant by contraction alkalosis. And B, I wasn't actually sure that that, whatever it was, was the explanation for what we were seeing. Uh, And so this bothered me, and it made me want to look back and try to get a sense for whether or not contraction alkalosis exists, and if it does, what's causing it. So actually, I I am really curious, Hannah, as a, a current med student, is does this ring true? Did you see this on rounds that people would say, oh, the increase in bicarbonate, that's contraction alkalosis? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And as I sit here with like mild palpitations, I realize I don't know if it's actually contraction, contraction alkalosis. <laughs> and Avi, in the ICU, you guys are pushing the diuretics even harder than I am on the floor. Does this ring true to you? Yeah. I mean, if, you know, if the bicarb isn't pushing 40, there's a problem. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. You guys are not doing the job well enough. Yeah. Um, so... To give you a little bit of a sense for where this came from, um, if you think about diuretics, the the powerful loop diuretics, they actually weren't introduced until the 1960s. So um, not surprisingly, the first description of diuretic-induced contraction alkalosis didn't appear until 1965. Uh, And this was an article published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. It included just four patients, and they were getting ethacrinic acid uh, at 50 milligrams four times a day. And ethacrinic acid, uh, many of you probably haven't used before. I've never used it, but it's a loop diuretic um, similar to the other loop diuretics. It just causes a lot of ototoxicity, which is why we don't see it now. Uh, and the dose of 50 milligrams four times a day is is a lot of diuretic, but it's, it's certainly within the acceptable range of ethacrinic acid. But in these patients, it produced three to seven liters a day of urine output for one to three days. So a, a pretty dramatic diuresis. And what the authors did is they, they looked at the change in all the different electrolytes, including bicarbonate, and they felt pretty confident that they could account for all the bicarbonate and say with certainty that whatever was left after this one to three days of diuresis, whatever bicarbonate remained in an extracellular space was basically the same amount that had been there before. And they also felt confident that they had accurate estimates of the extracellular fluid, and they knew that it had gone down. And so what they concluded is 
that the increase in bicarbonate that they saw in these patients was a result of a quote-unquote contraction of the extracellular space around an unchanged amount of bicarbonate. And that's where this idea of a contraction alkalosis came from. It's literally contracting volume around a stable amount of bicarbonate. Does that make sense so far? That makes sense, yeah. It does, although it begs Um, the question, why does it stay that way if the kidney's active? Yeah, yeah, but that, that, that's the exactly, I think, the question that follows is, even if you believe that this is a mechanism of generation of a metabolic alkalosis, and if you look in Harrison's, if you look in Up to Date, if you look in, in even renal textbooks, they do have this on the list, right? So this is, um, this is something that is generally accepted to be a cause. But even if it's a cause, even if it generates metabolic alkalosis, it isn't the thing that maintains the alkalosis. Um, and this is an important thing to realize because there's, if it's not just the contraction that's maintaining it, it must be something else. And so we have to find out what that something else is. And if we want to get that bicarbonate down, we have to attend to it. So one really important thing to know is that the kidneys are extremely good at getting rid of excess bicarbonate. Um, so in one study, uh, normal subjects were given about 1,000 milliequivalents of sodium bicarbonate for two weeks. And to give a little context, um, a sodium bicarbonate tablet that we might give in the hospital, right, 650 milligrams, that has eight milliequivalents of, of, uh, so of bicarbonate, right? And I just told you that 1,000 milliequivalents were given to these patients for two weeks. So that's about 250 tablets of sodium bicarbonate was given. They uh, actually gave it, those tablets to human beings? That, it, you know, this is the only paper that I have not been able to get into my hands. Um, and I wish that I had, because I don't know how they gave it. Um, it so it, uh, my guess is they gave a t- maybe a ton of baking soda. I'm not actually sure. So uh, while I was kind of reading about this, I got down a little bit of a rabbit hole of um, baking soda overdose case reports, which there are a lot of. Um, and this is about 17 tablespoons of baking soda. I'm pretty <laughs> sure if my calculations are correct. That's a <laughs> so lot just, of like, baking imagine soda. Imagine that going down. Like, uh, gosh, you would need a lot of water to. So but, anyway, but 17 tablespoons, that, that's not something you do accidentally. So who is like, you know what I'm going to do? So, I'm going to take 17 <laughs> tablespoons of baking soda. That just sounds delicious. Well, it actually, it, it speaks to your point. Cause so people would be using it for like GERD essentially. Um, well that's so, yeah, sort of old, yeah. The sippy but, diet from like the early 1900s before we had PPIs and H2 blockers, you absolutely used a lot of bicarbonate to treat peptic ulcers. It, yeah, and actually, so there's an excellent uh, sort of summary case report. Uh, baking soda can settle the stomach but upset the heart. Case files of the Medical Toxicology Fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco, which uh, really had some excellent insights into this. <laughs> you guys can tell. Really went down the rabbit hole here. Um, and I actually think that these patients, I, again, I haven't been able to identify the um, or read yeah. the full article, but I think these patients were being treated for peptic ulcer disease. Um, and huh. so that was one of the reasons they were getting a lot of bicarbonate. Um, but, but it speaks to kind of the point that you're getting. So you were talking earlier about this generation of the metabolic alkalosis and then the maintenance. Uh, and in these patients, basically there's always something that goes wrong 
in order, so these patients who are chronically taking this baking soda, there's always something that goes wrong. They have like a diarrheal illness, diarrheal illness, and they get volume depleted. And then it becomes a problem because then the kidneys can't handle it. That's exactly so it right. It sort of speaks to, yeah. Yeah, because here in, in this study who, of the patients getting 1,000 milliequivalents, right, so 250 tablets. It may not have been tablets of sodium bicarb, but just to give you a sense of the magnitude. Um, in this study, they were able to excrete virtually all of that excess bicarb. Their serum bicarb went up maybe two, three, four milliequivalents, which is not that much when you think about how much they were taking externally, right? Um, and so what this kind of highlights is the fact that to maintain the metabolic alkalosis, as Hannah just said, there has to be a problem with the kidney. Um, so one, maybe contraction can generate an alkalosis, but even if it can, it's not what's generating it. It's got to be something going on with the kidney's inability to excrete the excess bicarbonate. Sounds uh, a lot like a second hit. Yeah, exactly. And, mm. and, and, and to that point, Avi, the, the, the second hit uh, in diuretics, well, there is actually probably more than one second hit. There's probably second and third hits. But one of them that has been postulated is volume depletion, right? So if you give diuretics, the intravascular volume um, may go down. And there are a lot of potential mechanisms by which that might lead to maintenance of the alkalosis. And I'll say just briefly, one is decreased GFR, right? So if you've got less extracellular volume, there's less GFR, there's less filtrate, that means less bicarbonate is excreted because less of it is going out, uh, going through the glomerulus to the glomerular filtrate. So that's a kind of a simple way to, to think about why volume depletion might lead to maintenance. The other one is more complex, but I'll just say the, the simple way of thinking about it is when you're volume depleted, the kidney reabsorbs stuff. And so in this particular case, it'll reabsorb more bicarbonate in the proximal tubule, and it'll reabsorb my bar more bicarbonate in the distal tubule. In the, in the distal tubule, it's under the uh, action of aldosterone. And so those, all those mechanisms there, right, decreased GFR and increased reabsorption, may also help to maintain the alkalosis. So any comments, questions on that? Anything you guys want to add? Wait, just so, so I'm going to repeat it to make sure that I get it. So because you're volume depleted, because we're diuresing, there's less that's getting filtered, so you're reabsorbing less. But then there's also the fact that, what, what was the second part? Right, so first, decreased uh, filtration means that there's less excreted because you're, you're literally filtering less, so less is available for excretion. And then two, anytime someone is volume depleted, they're going to reabsorb sodium proximally, and the sodium-potassium exchanger will allow more bicarbonate reabsorption. It's a little bit more mm. complex than that, but the, the simple way to think about it is when the body is reabsorbing sodium proximally, there's going to be some bicarbonate reabsorption as well. And then distally... Aldo under the, uh, the, the guidance of aldosterone, uh, bicarbonate <laughs> is going to be reabsorbed as well. And there's, again, there's, there's okay. details that I think don't necessarily matter, matter for our understanding that volume depletion, both through the reabsorption mechanisms and the decreased GFR mechanisms, will maintain the alkalosis. I think it's, it's interesting because we, we often use alkalosis as like a proxy for maybe we need to stop diuresing. Um, 
And this suggests, assuming that there's nothing else involved, that you have made the person indeed volume depleted if they've managed to maintain an alkalosis um, in some kind of sustained manner. Is that what you took from this, Tony, or is it more complicated than that? Um, it's probably more complicated than that, but but undoubtedly on rounds, we'll say, oh, the bicarb is bumping, the BUN is bumping. Like We'll, we'll use all these other parameters because... Um, Either we don't trust our physical exam's ability to assess euvolemia or hypovolemia, or we just have a sense that it's an indicator of intravascular volume status. Um, but what's, I think, really important and something that I only um, got insights on in reviewing this topic is that the volume depletion alone uh, or correction of the volume depletion alone may not be enough to correct the metabolic alkalosis. And so let me offer um, two uh, studies that kind of make this point. Okay, so the first is in rats. And so um, just understand that this is, you know, <laughs> we're not talking about humans here. Um, but they basically induced metabolic alkalosis in a bunch of rats. And then they either gave them albumin to volume replete them but didn't give them chloride with that albumin, or they gave them chloride salts, but did not volume replete them. Okay, so one group got volume repleted, no chloride. The other group of rats got chloride salts, but didn't get volume repleted. And what was super fascinating is that only the rats who got the chloride had a correction of the metabolic alkalosis. So even the people... Sorry, even the rats <laughs> who got the volume, it didn't correct the alkalosis. And so it suggests that it, there's something else going on. And, and I think this was um, sort of pushed even further in, a, in a, a study that was published just two years ago in 2018, and it was an analysis of the CARES-HF study. And, and what really you need to know about the study is they basically examined patients with heart failure and they either used ultrafiltration to decongest them or they gave them diuretics, okay? And so in this group, the patients who got ultrafiltration, right, their bicarbonate went down, not up. So again, it's this idea that the volume contraction alone or the fixing of the volume contraction may not be the thing that's actually important. And it may be that there's some other super special, super amazing molecule that matters a lot. And I already mentioned it, and, and we're about to talk about it in a little bit more detail. So you're saying it ain't a contraction alkalosis after all? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it might be a contraction alkalosis, uh, but even if it is, there's something else going on. <laughs> well um, said, Hannah. Well said. Yeah. So, so here, I think the thing to know is that um, a molecule, uh, you know, on the Chem Seven that I probably, if you were to ask me six months ago, like list the seven things on the Chem Seven in order of importance and the order of like interest, I would have listed chloride seventh, and I might not even have listed it at all because I didn't care about it if not for its use in an anti-gap calculation. Um, but I've come to the realization that chloride in and of itself is pretty important. 
Um, Avi wrote a tutorial a few months ago talking about um, uh, sodium chloride and, and why um, it's particularly risky for things like acute kidney injury and, it, and this realization that the macula densa actually senses chloride was totally eye-opening to me. And here, um, it's chloride and chloride depletion that ends up being really, really important for the maintenance of metabolic alkalosis. Um, and one reason that chloride ends up being particularly important is because of a, uh, a molecule, um, an exchanger called pendrin. And so I'll ask the two of you, uh, before the year 2020, had either of you ever heard of pendrin? Until you taught it to us, Tony, no way. Yeah, so um, I definitely had not. Um, and it, it, I think the, the nice thing about pendrin is it's pretty simple. It's, all it does is it exchanges chloride for bicarbonate in the intercalated cells in the cortical collecting duct. And so if you deliver a lot of chloride to the cortical collecting duct, it will exchange that chloride for a bicarbonate, essentially excreting, secreting that bicarbonate. Um, but it clearly can only work if you give it chloride to work with. So in these patients who are chloride depleted, it doesn't matter if you volume replete them, you give these all, all these other things, unless you deliver chloride to these pendrin molecules, they're not going to be able to excrete the bicarbonate and correct the metabolic alkalosis. And I, I think to some extent this helps explain uh, why if you look at um, like schema for metabolic alkalosis and, and the treatment, you'll often see them stratified by the urine chloride. And they'll often be called chloride-responsive uh, metabolic alkalosis or not chloride-responsive me metabolic alkalosis. And the cool thing is you can give back the chloride in all sorts of different forms. You can give it as um, sodium chloride, saline. You could give it as potassium chloride. So when you replete someone's hypokalemia with potassium chloride, if they have a metabolic alkalosis, you're probably helping that as well. And you can even give hydrochloric acid. Um, I've never done that. Uh, Hannah, Avi, you guys ever given hydrochloric acid? I haven't even prescribed Tylenol. <laughs> I, I spilled it on a bench in chemistry class once and freaked out, but... <laughs> I've never given it to counts. a patient, no. Yeah, no, that ca I think that counts more than uh, the two of us. Um, yeah, so but this uh, seems, this so, seems so counterintuitive, though. But this seems counterintuitive, though, because, um, you know, you're using a loop diuretic. You'd expect there would be a lot of extra chloride delivered to the distal nephron, um, which would you'd seen, you would think it wouldn't be able then to sustain it. Um, so is this like a more of a, like a post-diuresis thing? Yeah, you know, it, it, a lot of the um, the tables that talk about um, metabolic alkalosis will separate out diuretic-induced into early and late, and I, I think it mm. gets to this point. Like, early in your diuresis, you're still going to be um, delivering a lot of chloride distally for exactly what, the reason you said, right? So loop diuretics, thiazide diuretics, they're going to um, um, inhibit the ability to reabsorb chloride. But I think later, one of two things happens. Either one, you become volume depleted and the body compensates and is able to reabsorb chloride despite the diuretic. Or two, you've stopped giving them the diuretic 
And so that distal delivery has abated. So I, th I think it's probably one of those two situations that we're dealing with. All right. So just kind of trying to wrap my mind around the whole thing. So it sounds like, yes, the diuresis, it is generating the alkalosis, but the thing that's maintaining the alkalosis is the fact that one, you're volume depleted. And so there's less kind of bicarbonate that's coming past the glomerulus. So there's less that's getting filtered and less that's getting reabsorbed. And then two, this whole chloride thing, because we're your whole body chloride depleted, essentially, you don't have enough chloride in the tubular lumen to switch out, to trade in, to keep your, or to, to get rid of your bicarbs. Right. And then there was that, that other one where there's, in addition to the decreased yeah. GFR, there's also just increased reabsorption, right? So whatever, whatever, whatever yeah. that um, GFR is sending to the tubule, even though it's less, that less amount is also being reabsorbed more. So there's multiple hits that I think are leading to the maintenance here. And there are other ones. There's hypokalemia itself that is often a part of diuretics that can maintain the metabolic alkalosis. Uh, so it, the reality is it, it is, in fact, multifactorial. But what's kind of cool is if you give back chloride, you'll correct a lot of it. And the other one is, is renin-angiotensin-aldosterone, right, that gets turned on in these volume-depleted states um, as a compensatory mechanism, but should also lead to retention of or excretion of, um, of acid. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. No doubt about it. Because that, what that makes me think about is like Kahn syndrome, right? The, the primary hyperaldosteronism. And so they yeah. get metabolic alkalosis too. They're more of a volume expanded. Um, Absolutely. Yep. Because I think they're kind of overdriving that distal, that distal uh, acid excretion, kind of like you were talking about. Um, Absolutely. Yep. Well, I, for one, am doubly excited to replete some <laughs> potassium uh, in, uh, in the morning, my first day of intern year, because I, I know that if my patient also has a metabolic alkalosis, I could also be giving some chloride. That's right. So you'll get some, someone who'll say, oh, you know, the potassium is 3.6. You don't need to buff it up to 4 anymore. You, you, but you, you, have, you haven't sort of clued into the fact that that's a thing we do for no reason. But you can tell them, I'm actually not doing it for that. I'm doing it to help their metabolic alkalosis. I think that'll go over great on day one. <laughs> yeah, the same day you're writing your first Tylenol order. Oh, boy. It's going to be, and my first hydrochloric acid. Yeah. Oh, that would <laughs> be amazing. If you, it, it, that's actually, that would be great if you said to your resident, so this guy's got a bicarb of uh, 29. He's been on Lasix for a few days. What do you say we give him some HCL? <laughs> You'll make a lot of friends on day one. Oh, oh yeah. boy, yeah. <laughs> so, Tony, you posted this as a tutorial topic February 15th, if I believe. Um, have you gotten any interesting responses or anything that stood out on Twitter? Yeah, so there were a couple um, interesting responses. So one was um, about alternate explanations. Uh, so there were a number of people who offered uh, explanations related to the strong ion theory and the Stewart equation. And uh, though that I think that is absolutely an alternate explanation. Um, I, I don't know that it's necessary here, um, but there are certainly people who subscribe to that uh, way of thinking when it comes to acid base. I also got this really heartwarming direct message um, from Chris Cannon, 
So some of you know Chris Cannon. He's a cardiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, his uh, study, the Prove It Timmy Two, Prove It Timmy Twenty Two, that's the study that basically turned us all into giving a Torvastatin eighty for every acute MI. Right? He's responsible for Torva eighty for every acute MI. I mean, he's just um, a fantastic clinician. But anyway, um, so he DM'd me because it turns out his dad was the uh, first author of the original contraction alkalosis paper in 1965. And he was just, like, so excited that his dad's work had been sort of making the rounds on Twitter. Because you can imagine that something from 1965 isn't often mentioned on Twitter. Um, And he even took a screenshot and sent it to his mom. Um, And I just, there was something about that that, it made me realize that there's there are, and this is going to sound a little corny, but there's actually people behind the work that's being done, uh, and sometimes I think we we fail to recognize that. And I'll say that um, though I didn't he- specifically hear from these people, um, it, it's worth noting that there are two scientists, uh, Robert Luke and John Gala, who basically did like all the cool studies on this idea of chloride repletion or chloride depletion. Um, And just their names, I think, should be mentioned, too, because they're just foundational when it comes to this topic of um, chloride depletion metabolic alkalosis. Was that the first time it happened for you, that someone with a connection to the primary research reached out? Well, it was the first time that the family of, of someone doing the primary research. I've had other people contacted me saying, hey, thanks for um, promoting some of, some of the work we've done. Um, but I hadn't, hadn't had someone reach out to me in this kind of way. And it was, it was, I don't know, I thought it was great. And I hope Dr. Cannon doesn't mind that I'm mentioning it. Um, but I, I felt like, you know, his father should be proud of his work. Um, you know, he and his family are undoubtedly proud. That's really cool. That's beautiful. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask one last question. What was the most interesting thing that you learned that maybe didn't make it in the tutorial while you were looking things up? Um, so there's actually a condition called Pendrin syndrome that I had never heard of. Um, and it turns out that the Pendrin molecule is named uh, for this Pendrin syndrome because it's Pendrin that's mutated uh, in this syndrome. Uh, never heard about it in med school, never heard about it in residency, Never heard about it at all uh, before reading about this. Um, but Hannah, I think you you know quite a bit about Pendrid syndrome, don't you? I do have the Wikipedia page pulled up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I actually had heard about it in med school. And I think the, the super interesting thing about it, so these patients have sensory neural hearing loss and thyroid goiter, uh, because the Pendrid, that same channel, that same ion exchange, is necessary for exchange of iodine with the colloid in in the thyroid, and then also for maintaining the appropriate uh, endolymphatic ion concentrations. Which that's so cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I hadn't all heard about Pendrid syndrome either until we started talking about this for the podcast. And what what fascinated me about it is they're not they don't have metabolic alkalosis in steady state unless they get a diuretic. Um, and I think it really speaks to that kind of, that, that the two hit, um, phenomenon that, that, that you kind of described. Yeah. It's, it's really the, the, it seems that Pendrin is important for the maintenance component, but not, uh, it, this may suggest 
uh, or may argue that it's not as necessary for the generation of the alkalosis itself. All right, so I've learned so much. Can you give us, Tony, can you give us what your take-home points from this tutorial were? Um, so, so first, uh, contraction alkalosis, uh, if it exists, uh, may generate a metabolic alkalosis but doesn't maintain it. So that's one. Two, um, the maintenance uh, has many potential explanations. Um, uh, one of them is decreased GFR. One of them is increased reabsorption. But a third is when you have chloride depletion, um, this fantastic molecule, pendrin, can't do its job at secreting the bicarbonate in the distal nephron. Um, and so that, to me, is kind of awesome because it leads to all the different ways that you might treat this, all the different chloride um, formulations, including, again, the potassium chloride that we use uh, to replete patients who have uh, hypokalemia in the hospital. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us. Curious clinicians, if you have an interesting tutorial or online meta teaching point you want to share with us and we could potentially feature on the show, make sure to tag us at our respective Twitter handles. I'm at Avraham Cooper, MD. I'm at Hannah R. Abrams. And I'm at Tony underscore Brew. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. And I still are. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, and as a reminder, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. See you next time. Bye. The Curious Clinicians are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer continuing education and ABIM maintenance of certification credits for physicians. Tap the link in the show notes or visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians for more information.